Well, it's good to worship with you. It's good to sing with you. That's actually part of the sermon today is to look at singing, what it is, what it does. It's good to worship with God's people. Just had a brother tell me that while we were not able to meet, that they really missed the gathering of the body. And so I'm thankful that we're here, that we're able to meet without any persecution, that we're able to look at God's word together. We gather to be edified and at the same time to worship God, to worship Christ. We're returning to our topic today about walking in wisdom in Ephesians 5. Walking in the wisdom of Christ. Walking the way that He's called us to walk. The way that He's taught us to walk. The way that God wants us to live. We looked last week at the first part of this passage, Ephesians 5, 15-21. This paragraph, I don't know if you know it, but it's a feast. It's a feast of theology and application. I was a little bit, I guess, taking too big of a bite when I started studying. I thought I would preach the whole passage in one sermon. Then I looked at guys like John MacArthur, who preached it in eight sermons, and uh, others four. And I thought two, definitely. We're going to do it in two, Lord willing. But today, these last few verses are, are really a feast. I want to read the whole passage to you, but we're looking at 18 through 21 today. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 5, 15, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Well, I'm so blessed to be able to study verses like this, passages like this, to spend the week in God's Word. It's what I love to do. It's why I wanted to become a preacher, a pastor. The book of Ephesians really is sort of a major mountaintop Ephesians encapsulates all the theology that we need to know and the application for the church. We often read the Bible as individuals, thinking that it's speaking to us, and it is. But remember, these letters were written to churches. This one, the church in Ephesus. And after that, circulated through churches. It's not until modern times, really modern America, that we think of Christianity as individual. Just me, myself, and the Holy Spirit. But this application starts in your own life, of course, but it's meant to be done in the church. And this whole paragraph is speaking of what we're to do in the church. Really, from chapter 4, it's been about that. What are we to do? How are we to live together? And of course, that applies to our individual life. But how are we to live with one another? Well, we're to walk in the calling and the way with which the Lord has called us. We're not to walk as the world. We're to walk in love. We're to walk in light. And now he tells us we're to walk in wisdom. Believers must live according to their identity in Christ. We don't live according to our old identity, our old person, but to our identity in Christ. And this means, Paul says here in this text, we're to live in the perfect wisdom from God the Father that he's brought to us and that he's shown to us in Christ. That means avoiding the foolishness of the world. We can't just live as the world. We've got to live as Christ has told us. Now, last week we started this text. I told you the main point of the paragraph is in verse 15. It's to live your Christian life in the wisdom Christ gives. Rather than falling asleep and drifting into sin, like he looked at in chapter 5, verse 14, we're to wake up, wake up and walk, live the Christian life the way that Christ wants us to live. And in this case, the wisdom that he has given us through his Holy Spirit. To walk in wisdom means to direct your attention to how you walk. Look carefully, he says in verse 15. And we opened that up last week and we talked about being aware of the dangers. Pay attention to how you live as a Christian. Don't be foolish. Don't be unwise. Don't drift through life aimlessly. I've checked that box, now I'm saved. I can just sit back and see what happens. There's attention to detail in the Christian life. And to how you live. 
And then I told you that Paul now spends the rest of the text here giving us four imperatives, four commands about how we should walk in wisdom. See, God is good to us. He doesn't just tell us what to do, but he shows us how to do it. He shows us in the life of Christ in the Gospels and in the epistles, it's broken down into a nice outline like Paul gives us here. Chapter 16 is the first imperative. Redeem the time. Redeem the time. The door is only open right now for specific opportunities in your life. You got to make the best of it. You got to make use of it. The days are evil, Paul says. We live in an evil age. Until Christ returns, that's just a fact. We live in an evil age and we can't just sit around wasting our time because if we're in neutral gear, what's going to happen? Eventually, we're going to shift down into reverse. And we're going to drift with the culture. There's no neutral in the Christian life. Either growing or you're going backwards. Either going forward with Christ according to Scripture or you're going backwards with the world. And so we need to redeem the time. We need to be careful how we spend our time. Number two was comprehend God's will. Comprehend God's will in verse 17. We've got to have an intelligent grasp of Scripture so that it results in a change in our life. We need to know the Bible so we know God's will. And we need to understand it. Not just know it, but actually understand it and how to use it in our life. Comprehend it. Get your mind around it. Put it together in your mind so that you can live out God's will. What is God's will? That you would be saved and that you would be sanctified. And that's the book of Ephesians. How were you saved? Chapters 1 through 3. How to be sanctified? Chapters 4 through 6. That's God's will. Now we can get into the details of that. and We did some of that last week. But the Bible doesn't tell us who to marry, what job to take, how much money to spend here, how much money to spend there. It gives us the principles of how to live the Christian life. We're to know it, we're to read it, we're to think about it, meditate on it, hear it preached, hear it studied in a group, and we're to apply it in our lives. Comprehend God's will. Now we continue today with the last two major points, and, and really even the fourth one we're going to see has some subpoints. The third imperative, the third command that Paul says to do, to walk in wisdom, is to avoid drunkenness, to avoid being intoxicated, to avoid letting our minds be altered so that we fall into sin. Verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine. Very simple command. It's a very hard command for many to do, for many to understand. Do not become intoxicated with alcohol. This applies to any drug, anything that causes a loss of control in your mind or in your body, in your faculties, in your behavior. Wine was the most common alcoholic drink in the ancient world. It was the strongest drink that they had. Now we could expand that. We could say, do not get drunk with hard liquor, wine, beer, prescription drugs, recreational drugs, anything that's going to alter your thinking. Because when we let our mind get altered, we're going to fall into sin. We're going to be more likely to follow the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, all they had in ancient times was water or wine to drink. That was it. If you lived in Egypt, there might be beer. Water or wine. And the water in most towns and cities was full of bacteria, viruses, parasites. So, to purify it, they added wine to it. And they just called it wine. So many times in the Bible, when you see wine or mixed wine, that's what it's talking about. In ancient, ancient Greece, thousands of years ago, when Homer wrote the Odyssey, they put 20 parts water to one part wine. That's mostly water with a little wine flavor to kill the things in it. Later in Greek times, they made it a little stronger. They put four to ten parts water with one part wine. So this is called mixed wine in the Bible. Anytime you come across that phrase, mixed wine. When strong drink is mentioned in Scripture, in the Old Testament especially, that's unmixed wine. So strong drink is not whiskey, vodka, tequila. That wasn't even invented until the Middle Ages. Strong drink is just what we call wine today. It was unmixed. In fact, the ancients knew it had a powerful effect upon the mind and the body, and they warned against it. Even the pagans knew, and they made laws to prevent people from drinking straight wine. One ancient writer in Athens, Greece, said, to those who drink wine moderately, it gives good cheer. But if you overstep 
the bounds, it brings violence. Mix it half and half, half water, half wine, and you get madness. Unmixed wine, you get bodily collapse. They knew. They knew it could destroy families. It could destroy a person's life. It could destroy even a country. Now, by the New Testament times, they were commonly mixing it with three to ten parts water and one part wine. Jews and Greeks both agreed that to drink it unmixed, what you would buy in the store today, would be barbaric. The Jews and Greeks agreed. And even the rabbis would not bless wine unless it had been mixed. They would come to your house. They're going to bless the meal. They're going to bless the food and the wine. But if it's not mixed, that's too barbaric. The rabbis would not bless it. So it was common that it be watered down because of its powerful effect. By Roman times, though, the Romans thought they were stronger than everyone else. And they often didn't mix it. And that led to all kinds of problems. So they had to pass laws that every place that served wine had to mix it with water. Four parts or three parts So even when we read of wine in the New Testament, it would have been mixed with water. By 79 AD, a generation after Paul, drunkenness threatened the Roman Empire so much that the emperor of Rome destroyed half the vineyards in the provinces. He ordered them destroyed, and he said no new vineyards could be made because drunkenness is killing the Roman Empire. Pagans knew this. So when Paul speaks strongly about it, Realize he's talking about wine that's been watered down four times weaker than today. Do not get drunk. Do not get drunk with wine. Why does the Bible speak so strongly about drunkenness? Well, because drunkards are in the list of those who will not inherit the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 6.10 A person who's constantly getting drunk and living that lifestyle is not a believer. They're not going to inherit the kingdom. Elders and deacons are called to be sober-minded. You can't even be an elder or a deacon It says in 1 Timothy, unless you're sober-minded, not getting drunk. Paul says the church should not associate with a drunkard in 1 Corinthians 5.11. Church discipline a person who is living this lifestyle. He says, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Because if you eat with such a one, what are you doing? You are proving their sin. It's okay. It's not a problem. See, drunkenness is a desire of the world. It's something that Peter says in his letter that believers did in the past, not now. That's something you used to do when you were a Gentile, when you ran with the Gentiles, when you lived according to the world. But as believers, we're not to do that. We're not to get drunk with anything that would cause us to lose our senses, that would cause us not to be sober-minded. Now, some younger folks, maybe some younger reform folks might say, you don't understand, pastor. It sort of just goes along with the reformed movement. You may have heard of the young, restless, and reformed. And someone might even say, you know, there's podcasts out there. There's social media groups that are filled up with thousands of guys talking about theology and alcohol. No, I understand. I've seen those sites. I've listened to some of those podcasts. And God understands perfectly, and Paul understands perfectly, that even in the ancient world, when it was watered down, he says, don't get drunk. Be careful. Be careful how much you drink. Don't get drunk with wine. God knew human nature. He knew our weaknesses. He knew that in 2020, those who are young and reformed and restless should not get drunk. It's foolish. It's foolish to do what many reformed groups and even churches do. They overly focus on alcohol. I can't tell you the stories that I've heard as people come into our church, what they've seen just in this area. One church I saw on Facebook posted a picture of their men's group at someone's house. Coffee table full of whiskey. 20, 30 bottles. Half drunk. That's their men's group. And then you know what the world sees when they look at that? They pull up that church's Facebook account. They see a frat party. They see the world. They don't see... Godly men coming together. Another person told me that when the women had baby shower, the men would get together and drink hard liquor. Another person told me their yearly trip to the coast to fish included chasing a guy down on the beach at night every time he got drunk. These are not things of God. These are not things of reformed even people. Christians should not live like that. John MacArthur addressed this over nine years ago. This idea that We're godly men, we're tough men, 
We can handle it. We can drink. It's our freedom. He had a series of blog posts that caused quite a stir. And he addressed this young, restless, and reformed movement. He said, for some who self-identify as young, restless, and reformed, it seems beer is a more popular topic for study and discussion than the doctrine of predestination. A sizable core of young men and the young, restless, and reformed movement are perfectly happy to give the world the impression that cage-fighting, beer-drinking, cigar-smoking, hard-partying, and other forms of bad-boy behavior are the distinguishing marks of their religion. He goes on to say, it's clear that beer-loving passion is a prominent badge of identity for many in this movement. Apparently, beer is also an essential element in the missional strategy. They go on to mix booze with ministry, often touted as a necessary means of penetrating Western youth culture. And conversely, he says, abstinence from drinking is deemed a sin to be repented of. There was a church in Arizona a few years ago that put a bar in the church serving beverages. Does that sound harsh, what MacArthur said? You should see what the Bible says about people who drink too much. Isaiah 5.11, woe. Woe is judgment. That's condemnation. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink. That's just wine. Woe to those who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. Proverbs 20, a book about wisdom. We're talking about the wisdom of Christ. Proverbs 20, verse 1. It says it's unwise to get drunk. Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Probably the best Proverbs is Proverbs 23. If you'd like to turn there in your Bible. Solomon's writing here and he, he wants to describe what it's like. What happens when you get drunk. And it's supposed to impress upon you not to do that. Proverbs 23 verse 29. Just look how he starts off. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has woe in their life and sorrow? Condemnation and a hard life. Who has contentions? That's fighting. Who has complaining? They're always complaining. Who has wounds without cause? They feel wounded all the time, like they've been beat up, but no cause other than the alcohol. Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. He's picturing this idea of just sitting long over drinks and just taking in more and more. At the last, it bites like a serpent. It stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter perverse things. That's the problem. It takes down your walls. It takes down your guard. You're not walking carefully in wisdom of Christ. You are doing perverse things, thinking perverse things, saying perverse things. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. The person who lies down in the sea is tossed around by the waves back and forth. You get up in the crow's nest on a mast. And the ship is being tossed and you're laying down and you're getting thrown around. And he wakes up and says, they struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. I feel completely horrible. So what's this guy's solution? When shall I wake up? When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. He just goes right back. It's like a dog returning to his vomit, right back to get more and more. The Bible has a lot to say about it because it's a common sin, and it has been. Since God gave us the invention of fermenting grape juice, it was meant to be a blessing. And we saw Noah abuse it right after he got off the ark. Well, Paul tells us, don't get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. That's the major problem. You fall into sin. Dissipation. The main reason it's unwise to get drunk or intoxicated in any way is because it leads to dissipation. The result of getting drunk is dissipation. What is this word? In Greek, asotia. Asotia means wastefulness, wild and undisciplined life. That means dropping your inhibitions, which leads to all kinds of debauchery. Behavior which shows lack of concern or thought for the consequences of an action. Senseless deeds, reckless deeds, recklessness. Jesus used this Greek word when he described the prodigal son and his loose living. The word for loose living is this same word, dissipation. Your translation might say debauchery. Titus 1.6 uses this word, a man cannot be an elder if he lets his older children in the home get drunk and live 
a rebellious life. Rebellious life is dissipation. And then Peter uses it in 1 Peter 4.4. Pagans are surprised that believers do not live a wild, debauched life with them, Peter says. And he uses this word to describe that kind of life that you used to live, that you no longer should live, and they're actually surprised. All your old friends are surprised that you don't want to go drinking and partying with them anymore. It's completely the opposite. Dissipation is completely the opposite of redeeming the time and living according to God's will. Paul's already taught us, redeem the time. How can you do that when your mind's not even aware of what's going on? Or it's aware enough to make really stupid choices. How can you live out God's will when it actually says, this is against God's will to be drunk? Now, Paul's not saying you can never, ever have an alcoholic drink, take a medication that might have some effect on you and make you drowsy. That's not what he's saying. Bible says you can have a drink. Jesus turned pure water into wine, which is probably then watered down to serve out. But keep three things in mind. It's okay to not drink, but if you choose to, keep three things in mind that the Bible warns us about. It's very easy and common to get drunk. That's why Paul says this. They're drinking wine with every meal. It's watered down, but they're drinking it with every meal. It's very easy for them. And it's very easy for us because ours is stronger. It's not watered down. And you can pick it up just about anytime, anywhere. Be careful. Many people in the world get drunk every day. That's not the Christian life. That's not walking in wisdom. And you're certainly not showing Christ to others by living that way. Secondly, thing to keep in mind, if you've ever had a problem with drunkenness or any kind of substance abuse, what the world calls addiction, then you shouldn't drink. You shouldn't. It's just putting a temptation right in front of you. If you've ever had a serious problem, even when you were an unbeliever, it's foolish to tempt yourself in that way again. And then thirdly, keep in mind that a brother or sister might stumble. As Paul says in Romans 14, you might have the freedom to do it, but you've got to think about your brother, he says. It's not about your freedoms. It's about your love for a brother or sister in Christ. And if they've struggled with that, and you might not even know, so it's better to be a little bit cautious. You might lead somebody else into sin. So be careful. Consider what the scripture says. Do the will of God, he's already told us. How do we do that? Not get drunk with wine. We've got to know the Bible and what it says about that, what it says about alcohol. We've got to be careful. That helps us to walk in wisdom. Drunkenness is a sin. You've got to flee from it. He doesn't say never have a drink. That was part of their everyday life. But it is a sin to get drunk. You should flee from it every time that the world, the flesh, and the devil tempt you with that. You've got to run from it. Run to Christ. Ask God for strength to resist that temptation. It's a major sin that a lot of people drop when they're converted. They were alcoholics before. Christ saves them. They're done with it. Be careful that you don't bring it back in front of them. Fourth major imperative, fourth command about how to walk in the wisdom of Christ. Number four, be filled by the Holy Spirit. Be filled by the Holy Spirit. This is a contrast to getting drunk. Don't get drunk with wine. Don't let wine fill you up so that you lose your inhibitions and do whatever you want. Instead of that, the opposite of that, be filled by the Holy Spirit. Be filled by the Holy Spirit so you can live for Christ. That's what he means. Now your translation probably says be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's by the Holy Spirit. We'll come to that in a moment. But in addition to all the benefits and spiritual gifts that the Spirit gives us, He fills us. He fills us with something. He has a ministry of filling that's a regular ministry in the believer's life. Paul's writing to believers. He's not saying they don't have the Spirit. He's talking about an ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it's a very important ministry. You need to understand it so you can receive that ministry. So you can know about it and do the things that he's telling us to do to receive this filling by the Spirit. Now before we look at it, what it does mean though, let's talk about what it does not mean. This short little phrase has been abused by so many for centuries. And it is hard to understand. It's one little phrase that's found nowhere else in the New Testament, except when the Holy Spirit first comes upon somebody at salvation. So at Pentecost, 
in the book of Acts. But this idea of ongoing filling of the Spirit, this is the only place that it's mentioned. Now what it's not, though, it's not receiving the Holy Spirit at salvation. He's writing to believers. They've already got the Spirit, so they're not receiving it at salvation. That's something God does. God gives you the Spirit at salvation. Jesus said the Father would send the Spirit. So Paul's not saying, let the Spirit finally come, as if you can be a believer without the Holy Spirit. The moment you're saved, you get the Holy Spirit. He's not saying that the believers should receive a little bit of the Spirit over time. When you're saved, you get a little piece of the Spirit, and then each time the Spirit comes and fills you, you get a little more, and someday maybe you'll get all the Spirit. No, Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come upon you. When He left, the Spirit would come. He did in Acts 2, and ever since then, every time a person's saved, they get all the Spirit. This is not baptism of the Holy Spirit. And of course, that theology has been abused as well. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12. The baptism of the Spirit is simply when the Spirit puts you into Christ. The moment you're saved, the Spirit takes you and puts you into Christ. And then we do water baptism to show that, to symbolize that. What happened inside? What happened with your spirit? What happened in your heart? The Holy Spirit baptizes you at the moment of salvation. This is not something you do later and start speaking in tongues. I've heard of people that just keep, keep getting shoved underwater until they speak in tongues. Finally, they do after they almost drown. It's not that. It's not the indwelling of the Spirit because the Spirit indwells every believer from the moment they're saved all the way through their Christian life. It's not the sealing of the Spirit that Paul mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 19 of Ephesians. That happens the moment you're saved as well. Those are things the Spirit does at the moment He regenerates your heart, at the moment He gives you a new heart so that you can believe, at the new birth, at your conversion. You're indwelt by the Spirit. You're baptized into Christ by the Spirit. You're regenerated, of course, by the Spirit. And you're sealed so that you don't lose your salvation. It's not a second experience. It's not a second blessing. This is a command that we are being told to do. Let the Spirit do something. Be filled by the Spirit. It's passive. Only God regenerates, secures, and dwells and baptizes. Some by Him alone. We do nothing. Did you ask God to baptize you into Christ? You didn't even know that was going on when you were saved. You didn't know a lot of what was going on. That's why the Bible's here to teach us what happened. One more thing. It's not some mystical experience. Being filled by the Spirit is not a mystical experience. It's not speaking gibberish. It's not speaking in tongues. It's not seeing visions. So what is it? Be filled by the Spirit. The Spirit is doing the filling. Now, with, if that's in your translation, it can be with from Greek to English. It can be. But most often, this preposition means by. And in combination with the word filling and the Spirit, it's by. The Spirit's doing the work of filling you with something. The Holy Spirit is the instrument, if you want to think of it that way. He's the one who fills. Who's doing the filling? The Holy Spirit. Are you doing the filling? No. Is the Father doing the filling? Is the Son doing the filling? No, the Holy Spirit in you is filling you up with something. It's one of the ongoing ministries that He does because you're regenerate, baptized, indwelt, and sealed. But what does He fill us with? That's probably your question, right? Okay, He's doing it, but what's He filling us with? I want to know what this is so I can have more of it. Well, Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say. So we have to study the Bible. We have to do a little homework. We have to think about what's gone on already in Ephesians. Has he used this word before in Ephesians? Go to chapter 1 and verse 23. 123, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God fills all in all. Christ fills all in all. So we have this verb being used here. Go to 319. And to know the love of Christ. So Paul's praying here that they would know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. How can you be filled up to all the fullness of God? That seems impossible. We need more information to understand what all these fillings are. And it's all talking about the same thing. 410. 4.10, he who descended is himself also, he who ascended, talking about Christ, far above all the heavens, so that he, Christ, 
might fill all things. Well, Paul, you're not really helping us much. You must have told them something before. Maybe we should go over to the other letter sent around the same time that has a parallel passage, Colossians 3.16. So whatever it is, it's, it's more of God, it's more of Christ, but in what sense? Colossians 3.16, a parallel passage. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Passive? Let it happen to you? What is it? The word of Christ richly dwell within you. And here's the parallel. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So what's he filling us with in Ephesians 5.18? It's with the word of Christ. It's with the knowledge that Christ wants us to have to live the Christian life and the understanding of how to apply that. It's to live out the will of Christ in your life according to his teachings. Remember he said in the Great Commission, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Why? So we can observe it. Teach us what he commanded so we can observe it. That's hard, isn't it? Okay, God gives us the Spirit. And then the Spirit continues to fill us with that knowledge and understanding and desire and all the things we need to live it out. Galatians 5.16 says it like this, But I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the power of the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. When you're in sin, you're not being filled by the Spirit. You're quenching the Spirit. You're grieving the Spirit, Paul's already said in Ephesians. When you live a life of sin, you're going to be disciplined and brought back if you're one of God's children. But, when you're being sanctified, when you're living a life of holiness and godliness, you're going to get even more of what you desire, which is godliness and holiness. Just like we read in the Gospel of Mark. To him who's given a little, much more is expected. God's going to continue to give us the things we need as we live the Christian life. He's going to continue to fill us with the Word of Christ so that we can live it out. Now, of course, that comes through Bible comes through prayer, comes through the various things that we do in the Christian life. But this is a command. It's a second person, plural, y'all, the church. Be filled by the Spirit. And it's passive, which means we don't do the filling, but we let the Spirit fill us. We get out of the way. We don't continue in sin so that this can happen to us. It's not optional. It's a command. Every Christian should be doing it. If you want to be Christ-like, This has to happen to you. It's vital. How can you be effective in the service of the church body without the Spirit's work in you like this? You can't. And you've you've probably felt this experientially when you're in sin. You know you're not growing. You know you're you're hung up, entangled in in a sin. And you're not growing in Christ like you should be. You felt that. Paul's saying, don't fill yourself with wine. Don't fill yourself with the sin of the world, as he's been saying in chapters 4 and 5. But let the Spirit fill you with more of Christ's will, the Lord's will. So if this is so important, how do we do it, though? The Spirit is filling us with more of Christ's will, His Word. Okay, Paul, what do we do to get out of the way, not sin, that's the whole Bible, right? Not, don't sin. Can you give us more specifics? He says, yes, I can give you four things you can do. That's verses 19 through 21. Here's four means, four ways where you can let the Spirit fill you with the words of Christ. Now, I should stop here and tell you that many people take this list as result of being filled by or with the Spirit. So many look at verses 19 through 21 And say, if you've been filled and are being filled, then these are the results. I can go with that, but I think Paul's doing more than that here. He's also telling us how we are to get out of the way so that the Spirit fills us with the words of Christ. What can we do, Paul? If it's that important, if it's a command, we need to understand it. So the context supports that these are the ways in which the Spirit is filling you. And the grammar does as well. These are a list of participles 
that follow the command. Participles hang upon a main verb. The main verb is be filled by the Spirit. Participles tell us how, why, when, where, all those things. And in this one, because they're present, the command is present, it is, I believe, means. The way by which you are to live corporately so that the Spirit can do its work, His work in you. Now, these are not individual spiritual disciplines. How does the Spirit work in your life individually? Listen to Frank's class on the spiritual disciplines. Reading the Bible, prayer, giving, evangelism. Those are things you do. This is corporately. What do we do as a church so that the Spirit can do His work in us? Number one, be filled by the Holy Spirit by outward expressions of praise. Verse 19. When we sing together as a church, we're not just singing to God, but we're singing to God's people, to Christ's body. It's doing something among us, speaking to one another. You see how he just jumps into speaking, an I-N-G, that's a participle in Greek, speaking to one another in three types of singing, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now you say speaking, does that mean I need to go up and start just reading my hymnal to Joey? Just start reading the next hymn to Mike? Speaking is just a way in the Bible that they would speak of singing. It's just another word. I think because he's focusing on what we're doing to one another in the gathered body as we sing, he uses the word speaking. You'll find many times when people speak in the Bible, but they're actually singing. The angels at Jesus' birth, that come and they sing, don't they, in the sky above the shepherds. It just says they said, they spoke, but they're actually singing. What are they singing? What are we to sing? What are we to sing? Psalms. Psalms are a Jewish term. It's a Greek word here for the book of Psalms. The Greek word Psalms means a song with a string instrument. They did play instruments in the Old Testament. I know some people say today that we shouldn't have instruments in the church. They had instruments in the Old Testament, and Paul's now saying, sing Psalms. It's okay to have instruments. And here he's saying to the early church, the book of Psalms. Turn those into music. Psalms sung in the early church, accompanied by a string instrument. He also says hymns. Speak hymns to one another. Sing hymns. It's a, a song of praise is a hymn. It's a praise to God. It, it guides us as we worship. Back then, guilds of hymn writers in the pagan world would, would labor away at trying to write songs to their gods. And then people started writing songs to the one true God of the Bible. The Jews had the psalm book. That was their hymnal. But in the New Testament, we're given the freedom to write sacred songs to God. So hymns usually are songs that have been around a while, and they praise God. They're sacred songs. But that's not all. We can't just be like many churches and say, if it's not in the hymn book, we can't sing it. We'd be in big trouble here because we're about to sing a song that's not in the hymn book. The hymn books aren't inspired anyway. Spiritual songs are the last group. It's just a general term for songs of rejoicing and praises to God. It's the idea of creating a new song, something new, that might even be based on a musical score that's familiar with the world. But we change the lyrics. We have to be careful. Certain songs are so sinful that if we just change the lyrics, it's going to make people think of that song. But just think of neutral songs in the world that you leave the music, take away the words, and replace them. There's one in our hymnal. All glory be to Christ. What's the music? Auld Lang Syne. Sing it on New Year's. We sing all glory be to Christ. The same music. This is a spiritual song. Something newer that's written. Martin Luther was always talking about new songs being written. Sing the old songs and write new songs for the church. Now, As we sing together in the church, the Spirit works in us to fill us. He fills us with more of Christ's will, more of Christ's word. We understand we love God more. And we're speaking to one another when we sing. Yes, we're worshiping God. We'll get to that in the next point. But we're speaking to one another, Paul says. Your singing helps us all. In Colossians, it's admonishing one another. That's a correction. That's a counseling word. Yeah, there's a biblical mandate for us to sing. If you ever go to a church that doesn't sing at all, it's not a church. We have to sing. It's one of the four elements of worship. We must sing in corporate worship. 
a uh, false teacher, Andy Stanley, recently said, Jesus never commanded us to meet together on a video being interviewed because his church isn't meeting until sometime next year. And he says, I don't know what the whole deal is with John MacArthur. He doesn't like me, but Jesus never commanded us to meet. Well, here's Paul's command. Not to mention there's a command in Hebrews 10 that says, don't forsake the assembling, but we're to meet. And here's another verse to back it up. We have to sing together. How are you going to do this by yourself? You should go down to HEB, find the first guy you see, and start singing a psalm to him. And now you fulfilled this command. Hey, man, I got a spiritual song. I want to, maybe an evangelism. Maybe that's what Scott does at work. But this is meant to be done in the corporate body as we gather. And the church should be congregational singing. All of these words have to do with people singing. Concerts are fine, Christian concerts, but not in the church. It should not replace our singing together. When we started this church, we just said, we just want to hear the people sing. We picked the best guy who could sing, and he's pretty good. And we've got a pianist, praise the Lord. And yes, we've added a backup singer, but the goal is not to sit back and watch people sing. It's not a concert. The church is not a concert where you turn off the lights and watch the band on stage and then you sit down to hear the sermon. We have to sing because we're commanded to do it so that the Spirit can do His work in us through singing. Somebody once told me years ago, here, Pastor, can we sing less songs and get to the preaching? Now normally if somebody said, can we just get to the preaching, I I would probably be happy about that, right? There's not enough preaching out there. But this person was saying, look, we spend way too long standing up and singing Let's just get to the preaching. And he tried to quote some guy from church history. And I told him, look, we'll never do less singing. We'll probably do more. I think we have added an extra hymn in our service on average since then. And eventually he decided this wasn't the place for him. We want to be filled by the Spirit. We're going to sing to one another. Also, number two, by inward expressions of praise. Be filled by the Holy Spirit. By doing what? By singing again. But this time, it's singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. When we worship, the Spirit fills us with more of Christ. When we are making melody inside, in our heart, in our innermost person to the Lord. Yeah, we're singing to one another, but we're singing to the Lord as well. There's a double action going on when we sing. We're singing towards God, and it's Him we worship. And at the the same time as we're helping one another, and the Spirit's filling us with more of Christ, We're also praising God and the Spirit's working in us to fill us as well. Again, it's not a mystical experience. It's not where you're singing and you suddenly feel like you're going to go crazy and do all kinds of silly things in church. That's not what he's talking about here. You're going to be filled more with Christ through the worship of the body together so that you can live a more godly life. And you will feel that over time. The more holy and godly you are, the more you're going to notice your emotions get in line with that and your reactions to other people get in line with that. But we're to make melody in our hearts to the Lord. Within our heart here means your emotions, yes, but more than that. In the ancient world, and especially in the Bible, the heart is the inner self, the innermost being, the deepest level of existence. With everything that you are, you're going to worship the Lord through singing. doesn't mean you've got to be the loudest person in church. But it better be happening inside your heart. Because if it's not from the heart, it's not worship. A lot of people can come to church and mouth the words. It sort of look like they're doing what everybody else is doing. But if it's not in the heart, it's not worship. Unbelievers often don't sing. I remember when I was an unbeliever going to a church. Everybody else was singing. This was a big church. Thousands of people singing. I didn't want to sing. Why? Why should I sing? I'm not a singer. I don't care. But eventually that convicted me. They have something I don't. They have desire to sing that I don't have. And that was one of the many ways that God used to convict me of my sin. That I'm not like them even though I thought I was. But sometimes believers don't sing either. I just can't sing, Pastor. No one wants to hear me sing. If we took a poll in this congregation, probably most of us would say that. I can't sing like Joey. I can't sing like Claire. So I'm just going to barely sing. That's really the fault of modern pop culture and us paying people millions of dollars to sing and hearing the best voices out there. They didn't have this problem in the ancient church. Most of them couldn't afford to go to a concert if there was a concert and the concert was probably so pagan and immoral they didn't want to go as Christians anyway. They just got together and sang. They didn't know what it sounded good, sounded bad. 
They're called to sing. Hey, I'm going to sing. I'm going to follow the guy next to me. I can't sing very well. I'll just follow the guy next to me. That's what I did in Master Seminary Choir. That helps. Follow the piano. That's why we have a piano. We have a good pianist, but the purpose of the piano is to follow along at the level of the notes, higher, lower. And we didn't come to hear how bad or good you sing anyway. So don't worry about it. Just sing. Just sing. We came to sing together. We came to sing to one another and to God and let the Spirit fill us in that work. We're going to sing in a minute. and We're going to hear if this sermon gets applied. Because those first two points of how the Spirit is filling you with the will of Christ, with the words of Christ, is to sing to one another and to God. Just do it. You know, I used to not sing very loud because I don't think I'm a great singer. But then suddenly, I'm the pastor. And everybody's looking at me. I better sing as an example. And people are looking at you too. The kids are looking at you. The person behind you is looking at you. They're not looking to see if you're the greatest, latest singer that's going to make millions. They're just watching to see if you want to sing as Christians should. Number three, how does the Spirit do this work? Fill us by giving thanks to God, Paul says. When we thank God the Father, always giving thanks, verse 20, for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. We've got to give thanks. We've got to give thanks as a corporate body. We tried to do that today in our, in our meeting, in, our, in my prayers. I, I want to give thanks to God for everything that He's done. All things in life, you have to be given thanks. Give thanks to the Lord. Show your gratefulness for saving you for sanctifying you, for giving you everything you need every single day, for not leaving you in that drunken stupor that you used to live in, for bringing you out of that and not leaving you with all those temptations and sins that you had when you were an unbeliever. Yeah, we're still struggling with some of them, but God's done a lot of work in us since we've been saved. Tell Him how thankful you are. Thank Him. This is often done through prayer. So really, I think Paul's saying pray. Pray as a church. Pray as individuals in the church. Thank Him. Food, home, job, children, sleep, mind, body, all the trials, all things in your life. For this facility, for these chairs, for our elders, our deacons, for every member, for the kids in the congregation, for the classes, for everything in your life and in your church. And do it in the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Probably realize that I pray that a lot at the end of my prayers. It's not a magical little phrase, but Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Because we're Christ, we have access to God. We can come before God and pray in the name of Christ. We're under Him. And God hears our prayers. And God will answer them if it's His will. So we give thanks to God. And number four, by submitting to one another. Be subject to one another. Verse 21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. It's really submission here. I think it's a better word. Submit. Now this is a bad word in our culture today. Young people don't want to submit. They don't want to obey. They'd rather go out in the street and burn something. They'd rather be disobedient to their parents. They'd rather be disobedient to authority. But it's a biblical word, submit. In fact, we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at different examples of submission that happens among believers. That's really what Paul's doing in 5.22 through 6.9. He's not talking about mutual submission. Husband, submit to the wife, and the wife, submit to the husband. Father, submit to your children if they're in the church. That's not what he's saying. Some people will try to read that into this to, to cancel out what he's going to say about wives Next. No, he's saying in the relationships, in the roles, in the functions that God has given us in the church, you need to submit because the Spirit is doing a work through your submission. The Spirit's doing something in your life. He's filling you with more of Christ's will. Submit means to voluntarily yield to someone in love. Not to be forced to do it, but be subject. It's passive again here. Be subject. Passively submit yourself to those that God has placed over you in authority within the church body. 
He's going to talk about wives submitting to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters. Elsewhere, he says younger men should submit to older men. Instead of forcing their way on older men, younger men should submit and learn from older men. And church members are to submit to elders. And we're all to submit to God, of course. We're all to submit to the word. But this verse is talking about submitting in the church roles and functions, which we'll look at over the following weeks. But notice how he ends it there. You see how he ends that verse? In the fear of Christ. In the fear of Christ. Not in judgment. The judgment that might come upon us will be cast into hell if we mess up. But because we reverently fear our Lord Jesus, and we know what's going to happen when he comes back, and we know what judgment's going to look like upon the world, we want to do what he says. A child's not kicked out of the family when they disobey, but they should have a reverent kind of fear of their father. I'm going to be disciplined. And so here we have to have all the more reverence for Christ. He's with us. He's in us. He's watching us. And we need to submit. We need some extra help. That's why Paul's saying this here, the fear of Christ, because we don't always want to do it. It's not in our nature to submit to others, even in the church. But he says it's in the fear of Christ that you're doing it. And he's going to pick that theme up over the next few weeks as we look at all the relationships we should submit. Well, we're to walk in wisdom. And hasn't he given us a really good outline and way to do it? This is all right from the text. We've got to follow these. We're going to grow. You want to grow? You want to sin less and be more like Christ? Then walk as he's taught us to walk here. This is the apostle giving the teaching of Christ. What he's inspired to write and give to the church that we can read 2,000 years later almost and learn how to live a Christian life. There's all these different ways out there that people say, how can you live a more spiritual life? Oh, the Bible gets really detailed on that, doesn't it? I'm thankful. It's not up to whatever book I pick up at Barnes and Nobles. It's actually right here in the Word. So let's walk in the wisdom of Christ. If you're here today and you can't do this because you're, you're not a believer, you're not a follower of Christ, then I encourage you to flee to Christ. If we have a fear of Christ that's godly, imagine what you have as an unbeliever. That's a fear of judgment. You're going to try to do some of these things because you think it's right and you can't do it. You go right back to the world. That's an unbelieving heart. That's an unconverted heart. Flee to Christ. Turn to Christ. Children, before you end up in the drunkenness that the world's going to pull you towards, turn to Christ. Wouldn't it be great 20 years from now, kids, teenagers, to say, I've never been drunk in my life because I got saved when I was young. I never fell into that sin. That would be great. Turn to Christ. Flee to him. Father, we come before you asking you to help us walk in wisdom. We know that the Spirit is in us. He's working. He's doing what we need to live the Christian life. And we need to do the things you've called us to do so he can work in us. Bring us together as a body. Help us to, to sing to sing to one another, to sing in our hearts, to give thanks, to submit where you've called us to submit. We want the Spirit to work in us. Give us more of Christ. Give us more of the will of Christ, the knowledge of Christ, the words of Christ. Help us to live for your glory. Amen.